Welcome to Finance Lab, a podcast for the intellectual investor, powered by Dalbar, an independent financial research firm dedicated to improving the investor experience. Finance Lab is where real investors get practical insight and perspective from real experts. In each episode, we'll dive deep into the fascinating world of finance, exploring topics like investing, financial planning, market trends, and everything in between. We're here to empower you with the tools and knowledge necessary to make informed financial decisions. Hello and welcome to Finance Lab. I'm your host, Corey Clark from Dabar Inc. And today's episode is about the science of risk versus return. Now, I would say that most investors, if not all investors, intuitively understand the fact that investing has two sides of a coin. On one side, you want to maximize your returns and the money that you earn. And on the other side, you want to minimize the losses. And maybe a coin isn't the greatest analogy. Maybe it's more aptly described as two ends of a tug of war rope. But whatever analogy you want to use, these are antagonistic factors that the higher the risk, generally the higher the return and the lower the risk, generally the lower the return. But it's, it's not a natural force that can't be optimized. We can maximize returns while at the same time minimizing the downside risk. And, and many of us, and including myself, that are not trained in the art of investing, we do have a tendency to focus more on one side of the coin, and that would be the, the maximizing the returns. And what we'll learn in this episode is that, that that can be a harmful thing to do. And to counteract that natural tendency in, in this episode, we want to dig deeper into the risk side of the equation. Because there is a structured and scientific way of thinking about risk. It, it can be measured. It can be planned for. And, and quite frankly, it has to be planned for in order to successfully meet one's financial goals. Um, the truth is the markets are they're unpredictable. Um, there'll be times when the market goes down. As an investor, there are going to be times when you lose money. And that's just a fact of life. But how can we manage it? And, and that is what our guest here today is, is here to help us understand. His name is Rick White, and he's going to introduce us to a structured way of thinking about risk and return. And Rick is president of both Patriot Business Consultants, Inc. and Triangle Adult Learning Center. Patriot Business Consultant, Inc. is a tax planning and asset coach for business owners that want to limit the amount of taxes they pay to no more than what they're legally required to, and to also build personal wealth apart from the business. Triangle Adult Learning Center provides adult financial education materials for advisors who want to be educators first. And Rick's flagship course is entitled The New Reality in Our Retirement. And he's the instructor of that course in North Carolina, with other advisors teaching the course in various locations around the country. Rick is also a mentor to advisors nationally and is a founding member of Next Level Advisors, along with other experts in various fields associated with financial planning. Rick, thanks for joining us today. It's great to be with you, Corey. So I want to start off with a sort of a broad question to, to level set for the audience, uh, and that is, how do you as a professional think about and measure risk and return? Well, when, when we think about, you know, the concept of, of risk return, like you had indicated earlier, uh, we oftentimes focus on the rate of return feature of it. And uh, we fail to consider the risk factor involved. And uh, as we'll show in our discussion, uh, and, and one of the concepts I teach in the course, particularly as it relates to those approaching retirement and in retirement, 
is that uh, the, the whole idea, of course, is that as baby boomers, we do not want to run out of money. So one of the major determining factors in how long our money lasts is related to this concept of volatility. So we study the volatility uh, in a portfolio, and uh, we'll get into the nuts and bolts of it, but having a great picture of what the volatility factor is, is a direct determinant in terms of knowing and being able to focus on and in reality, uh, see how long our money lasts because, you know, the downturns that we've incurred, you know, those of us who have been through the, the tech bubble crash, the mortgage crisis, and then most recently, the last couple of years, the volatility is, is a devastating effect, particularly as our um, account balances have gotten larger and larger and larger, that volatility has a greater effect. So you mentioned volatility. Is that sort of synonymous with risk as a professional? Do you, do you measure risk through volatility? And, and if so, how, how do you measure that? Well, we definitely uh, measure risk uh, through the concept of volatility. And uh, from a math standpoint, it's uh, measured in terms of what we call standard deviation, how much the account balance will deviate both positive and negative from the mean, the midpoint. And um, that can have a, a huge effect when you're having, you know, swings to the up, uh, positive side. Everybody loves that. In fact, if you're 20 and 30 years old and you have a long time horizon, then, you know, large amounts of volatility is something that you can live with if you're accumulating money. But once you've got you know, a sizable amount accumulated, that equation changes to where uh, a negative volatility can have detrimental effect. So we measure that by measuring what's called standard deviation. And we want to see what that swing uh, positive and negative is, because we can determine mathematically what's the probability of the effect it's going to have on one's portfolio. Yeah. So those with a, with a, a longer time horizon volatility. If you have a downswing, perhaps it's a it's a good buying opportunity. But once you get to tighter time horizons, then then it really hits on. Uh, you know, it's a lot it's a lot riskier because the individuals are going to need that money a lot sooner, and and perhaps there's a, a market timing risk that that that's at play. Um, so you, you mentioned standard deviation, which brings me back to my. Uh, days of, of statistics class. <laughs> could you, you know, without, uh, I don't want to geek out too much here with the math, but could you talk a little bit about what standard deviation is in sort of broad terms? Like how, how does that equation work? I, I know you said it's how much it, it deviates from, from the mean, but how, how is that actually measured? Let me give you an example um, of a portfolio management. And, and you know, a lot of this uh, will show up in an analysis with, with Morningstar, and uh, we use Morningstar and JP Capital Markets to measure a portfolio's forward-looking rate of return and uh, risk factor or standard deviation. And this tends to be more prevalent in a buy-and-hold type of uh, setup, which is typical of most 401ks and, and frankly, many uh, IRA accounts uh, because of, of either the business model of the advisor or 
uh, the conventional financial wisdom that the investor is operating under that, you know, it's okay if you lose money, it'll come back, uh, just hold on for the long term, and so on. So we uh, use, as I mentioned, um, uh, Morningstar, JP Capital Markets to measure this. And one example, for example, uh, that we often find in a portfolio is there might be a, a forward-looking rate of return of, say, six, uh, but the standard deviation is 13. And what that means to us is that the it's 13% up and 13% down. So this is covering two standard deviations, which is is approximately 95% of the time. So just as a uh, an example, a visual, in an up market, we would add 13 to 6. That gives us 19% rate of return. Nobody's unhappy with that. That's great. Uh, but to the downside, we subtract 13 from 6. That gives us a negative 7. Well, that creates a hole that's actually larger than the mean, and we have to crawl out of that just to get back to where we were. And statistics show us that, say, for example, you're down 30%, you've got to make a 43% rate of return just to get back up to where you were. And, of course, passage of time and all of that, it, it becomes something that's critically important uh, for those that are, I would say, you know, 55 and older as they're approaching retirement, even within 15 years of retirement, it becomes a bigger issue. So we compare that to a portfolio that by comparison may have a a 6% rate of return but instead of a 13% standard deviation it may only be 6.5 for example well we do the same analogy in other words that's 6.5% up and 6.5% down and uh, so in an up market we add the 6.5 to the 6 that gives us obviously 12.5 that's not nearly as exciting as 19 but in a down market, we subtract six and a half from six. That gives us only a negative uh, uh, 0.5%. And that's much more manageable than, say, a negative 7%. So the idea is that it, it's not as high. You cut out the highs, but you also cut out the lows. And it's a concept of consistency. When there's more consistency, then, um, you know, you tend to, to grow perhaps a little slower, but steadier. And what, we're, what we see is mathematically it works out to be um, much more advantageous. You know, we, we use an example in the course where, and this comes from Bloomberg, and we measure the S&P, the raw S&P from 1980 through, uh, I believe in the course, 2022. And not that this can actually be done, but it's a good um, uh, statistical look that it shows the the raw um, uh, experience of the S&P, a little over 9%. And the talking heads on TV says, you know, you always want to uh, stay in because you don't want to miss the uh, upside. So we ran it and, and by missing the, uh, the best 30 days of every year, uh, it works out to be a little over 4% rate of return. And to that point, the talking heads are correct. But the most interesting math is that when we miss the worst 30 days of every year, the actual rate of return shoots up to over 15%, which is almost unbelievable unless you see the math on it. 
but it simply illustrates how important it is to protect the downside. So it leads us back to this concept of when you protect the downside, the upside takes care of itself. So measuring this volatility and knowing what your volatility numbers are in your portfolio, something that I don't see talked about very much in the financial planning community, actually is a, an important determinant in discovering how long your money's going to last in retirement. Yeah, that, that's interesting because I, I've seen many graphics and uh, in, in various places that talk about if you miss the the top, in, you know, it might be in a year, it might be over the last 30 years, but the concept's the same, but it's always looking at that side of the coin. It's missing the, those great days. And I think it's to try to underscore the fact, don't try to time the market, don't get out, because if you get out at the wrong time and you miss one of those days, look at what it's going to, what it's going to do. But I think it's very interesting because uh, I've never seen the other side of the coin that if you would, if you miss the worst days and that, you know, that's not to say anyone's going to be able to time or predict and say, today's going to be a horrible day. I'm going to sell out and sell back in tomorrow. But just as you were saying, to, to illustrate the power of the two, the power of the, the risk mitigation is more powerful than the other side of the coin. You know, if I may uh, interject here, the conventional financial wisdom, even among advisors, is that it has to be a market timing issue uh, in order to manage that you know, downside volatility. And that's not inherently true in today's world, because if if you have the right tools available to you as a uh, money manager, or a, an advisor, or even as an individual, then there are certain tools that are designed to mitigate risk. And we're not talking exclusively about insurance type products at all. We're talking about market products. And, and so where it's measurable and verifiable that they have the capacity to protect the downside and not that you can eliminate all risk. No, you, you, you don't want to, but you can mathematically lower that standard deviation. So if I was to say it another way, it's like oftentimes we see advisors and people in portfolio construction, they might do a 50-50 a you know, equities to uh, fixed income and cash. They might do a, a, the classic 60-40 and so on. And when, when they do that, and, and it's a pretty much a buy and hold type of scenario, we do the pie chart. In fact, that's how, what we were taught early on in, in our professional investment uh, years, that, you know, 85% of the success of, a, uh, of an investor is based on the asset allocation. Well, there's lots of factors that go into that in this day and age, but the idea is you do the asset allocation, occasional rebalance, but you end up with a given rate of return standard deviation, kind of like what I talked about an example a while ago, the 6% rate of return and 13% standard deviation. Would it make more sense to begin with the end in mind such that, well, maybe I'm, uh, we'd be better off to begin with the 6% rate of return and 6.5% standard deviation or 7% standard deviation, and then design a portfolio and manage it such that that becomes the target rather than the result. And so I'm curious if, if hypothetically I was in a, a portfolio that had the, the 13% standard deviation and, and I wanted to work with someone to get it down to the 6%, how is that 
how is that accomplished? Is that by constructing the portfolio with individual securities that also have a lower standard deviation? Or is it uh, sort of the correlation between the the assets or the asset classes? Obviously, not to go into a specific financial plan or investment management plan, but in broad strokes, how do you go about minimizing that from a 13, hypothetically, to a 6? Yeah, so it's 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 not a static thing. It's a moving target based on you know what's going on in the markets, what's going on in the uh, the macro economy, and so on. So it it may involve a number of different ways to get there. Uh, some of the tools uh, will involve, in some cases, where uh, uh, increased uh, guaranteed cash flow becomes a risk mitigating factor. And that may or may not be suitable for everyone by any means. For many people, it is, particularly in retirement. But uh, there are other instruments uh, just in broad brush. There's different flavors of these, different offerings, but structured income notes that are designed to be a little bit of a bond replacement that, um, you know, have a, uh, a given yield but yet protection to uh, the downside to a large degree, not 100%, but to a large degree. So even if the market's down 25%, in many cases, you still get, you know, the yield that's stated plus all of your money back. Well, that's a risk mitigating technique. And there are ETFs that do similar kinds of things, but with various levels of, you know, uh, a higher coupon rate or higher stated uh, yield with uh, various levels of downside protection. And, and so it's not only the tools you use, but how those tools are managed. And then it's monitored, obviously. It's not just a set it and forget it kind of a thing. But the key is to be, you know, uh, very active with it um, in, in terms of at least every three months, six months, see where they are. And many of these instruments can be callable so, you know, they have to be actively managed with respect to that. So it's not a 401k type of structure. It's not, you know, individual holdings that may have a lower volatility, although that can factor into it. It's not the sole answer. Yeah, very, very dynamic equation there. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of, of retirement planning, I, I, know, I know that in a lot of cases, when we, we look at retirement planning, we look at a percentage of, or probability of achieving success or the probability that you'll get to a certain income replacement. If we're minimizing the standard deviation, minimizing the downside risk, how does that sort of flow down and trickle down to what the probability of success? Because it's not as exciting to potentially not earn the 19% and to earn 11% instead, but it's got to be pretty exciting if you look at uh, some sort of uh, simulation and you see that you have a 95% chance of reaching your goal. So how do those two things relate and what have you seen in your experience, how that lower standard deviation relates to probability of success? Yeah, it's a very real uh, measurement because uh, we use a case study in in the course and it's it's borne out in literally uh, day-to-day practice with my team. But say, for example, the portfolio where uh, I know we had one that was 6.15% projected rate of return with the uh, 13% standard deviation that I had mentioned. And, you know, with, with the, their, their portfolio value, the income goals, the stated income, the taxes, all that sort of thing. And, um, 
over the particular time horizon, which in this case, the couple uh, lived a long time, um, their current path based on their current rate of return standard deviation, as, as I just mentioned, the 6.15 and 13, landed them with a 52% probability of success after you know a, a thousand Monte Carlo simulations. Better than half, but probably not good enough. That's <laughs> basically a flip of the coin, you know, any way you look at yeah. it. So without even going into recommendations for them, I said, well, let's just, why do we talk about this in the course? Let's run a, a mathematical equation, run your same retirement analysis, but rather than um, impart the 6.15 and 13, um, we were really tight on this one just to make the point 6.15% rate of return with a 5.5% um, a standard deviation. In fact, it was even lower than the rate of return. So very little volatility whatsoever. And it literally changed everything else in the plan was exactly the same. The only, the only uh, difference was that relationship between rate of return and standard deviation being much, much tighter. We ran the same Monte Carlo simulation, and instead of a 52% probability of success, uh, they had a 94% probability of success with a uh, uh, mean value at end of life of, of 1.4 million. Uh, in other words, they have a 50% chance of having more, 50% chance of having less than that compared to, I believe it was 175,000. Um, <laughs> at the midpoint uh, at the end of life with the 52% probability. So it made a huge difference and it was simply very indicative. Did it make sense for them to reduce their volatility? Because again, that's, that's what we talk about in the course. Volatility is a major determining factor in, in um, uh, determining, is a major factor in determining how long their money lasts. And it's, it's, Proven mathematically, it's, it's pure math. What's interesting to me, sort of looking at it as, I guess, a, a quasi layman, you know, I wouldn't say that I'm, you know, I'm in the financial services industry, but I'm not a financial professional. So I still would consider myself a layman. But what what's really interesting to me about this whole conversation is that when we decrease the standard deviation, decrease the volatility, we don't necessarily decrease that mean. Because in your examples, the mean stays the same. You're just tightening the the window above and below, um, and so I, I think that's what that's I guess that, that that's what surprises me. Because intuitively, I, I would I would think, oh well, if you're if you're minimizing your risk, you're minimizing what you can expect to gain. And I guess it's true in some sense, but it, you know, as as you've been pointing out in in these examples, your mean return is not being sacrificed by by lowering the standard deviation. Of course, if, if you're on that upside, yes, that the, the it's a tighter window, um, but you're not necessarily sacrificing what your what your average return or what the expected return would be in the middle of that window. Um, and so that that's what's really interesting uh, to me from from this conversation, you know, coming at it as a uh, an, an amateur. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, that's that's a, an astute observation because yeah, the, the conventional wisdom is you have to take more risk to get a decent rate of return. But if you think about it, your return would be higher if you didn't have to crawl out of a hole. So 
uh, rate of return is not particularly difficult to achieve, say the 6% in this example, uh, when you don't have to crawl out of a hole. You manage so that you protect the downside. And, and one of the examples that we talk about in the course is when there are periods uh, with negative rates of return, the average rate of return does not equal the actual rate of return, in other words, actual dollars. So if it's volatile 8% versus a consistent 8%, for example, not that you can get consistent 8% every year, but just conceptually, you end up with about over a 10 year period, about 40% more money uh, with, with, uh, when you don't have the volatility, which is the whole issue. You know, as retirees, we eat out of dollar amounts. We don't eat out of percentages. So you're right. It's easier to maintain that rate of return when we don't have the extreme negative volatility. Yeah, we're, we're getting close to time, but I did want to ask you one other thing uh, around behavior. Because and, and so that's something that's near and dear to, to my heart. Uh, Dalbar does a, an annual study of, of investor behavior. And, I, you know, I would imagine that despite the fact that investors might think that they can stomach volatility because they know that, you know, they should be able to buy and hold, be patient, look at all the, the things that they've seen that show how markets recover. But in reality, in real life, when someone sees a... Uh, I guess in the example you gave, it would be like maybe a negative 7% if it was, if your mean was around six and, and then your standard deviations, uh, 13, they can't stomach that. And there's going to be a ripple effect behaviorally. So do you agree with that? Have you, do you see a, a behavioral aspect that's a, a, an added advantage to having a tighter window and a, and a lower standard deviation? Well, absolutely, because uh, in fact, Dalbar is, is is famous for you know statistically showing that people that knee jerk reaction, you know, and they tend to when that when it goes negative, they they're less successful over time. So that's one factor in it. But as you mentioned, there's this concept of of, of how much risk am I willing to take, and that's one thing people oftentimes will will answer on their risk form, you know, a certain way. But as you indicated, when it gets into the nitty gritty of what's happening in real life in the market, they tend to be knee jerk in reaction. And uh, in fact, it, it bears it out that, you know, there's a difference between what you think you're willing to take and, and the risk that you can actually afford to take uh, two different numbers. So human behavior is critical. So we find in a, in a very practical way, that when volatility is reduced, it's much easier for the investor to maintain course. Even if there is some volatility, they know it's not as extreme. And they know that by consistently referring back to, it's all about the end in mind, as I said earlier. What's your probability of success? As long as it's on track for 90%, 95%, 100%, whatever your numbers are, then that's all that matters. And the, the net result of that, of course, that's all a function of, you know, this relationship between rate of return and standard deviation or risk. Great. Rick, any, any final thoughts? We're, we're about at the, at the end here of our time together, but I want to give you the last word for our audience uh, regarding this topic. Yeah, I, I think uh, one of the things I want to leave uh, everyone with is this that it's, it's pretty difficult to do this on your own. So if you're paying an advisor 
what you're paying a good advisor for, a good money manager for, is managing risk. Again, rate of return is not hard to do. What you're paying them for and the value of the fee that you're paying is what are they doing to protect the downside? So any advisor should be able to concretely answer this question. When the market goes down in a systemic market decline, what are you doing to concretely protect my money? That is Rick White. Again, he teaches a course, The New Reality in Our Retirement, along with other advisors uh, across the country. Rick, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a, a really insightful conversation. I love being able to take what seems like an abstract concept and actually boiling it down into something structured and scientific. So that was great. And I thank you for that. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. If you found this conversation valuable, please visit financelab.dalbar.com to connect with today's guest. We'll see you on our next episode of Finance Lab.